0: Veni, vidi, vici. I'm not speaking in tongues. I I don't believe that gift still exists. I'm speaking in Latin. I came, I saw, I conquered. That's what Caesar wrote to the Roman Senate in one of his later military campaigns. You see, the Roman Senate, which was the governing body of Rome, wanted to know what their generals were doing off in the far reaches of the world with their troops, with Roman troops and Roman resources, so they wanted updates. Well, Caesar's military conquests had become so legendary, that's, that's, that's all he needed to say to the Senate was, "Veni, vidi, vici, I came, I saw, I conquered. And his troops, Caesar's troops, had come to respect his authority and his power to such an extent That they followed him wherever. So when he stood on the banks of the Rubicon, which is the river on the northern boundary of Rome, and pondered what to do, he pondered, do I cross the river, which was an act of war against Rome, because they had a a law that said if any general enters Roman soil with a standing army, that is an act of war. So as he stood on the banks of the Rubicon with the 13th Roman Legion behind him, this legion that had gone to the ends of the earth with Caesar and fought with him for the better part of a decade, he knew that they would follow him because they respected his authority. They had total confidence in his authority and in his power because power is part of authority. Those two things go together. And his troops respected his authority either because they loved him or because they feared him. And when he gave the command to cross the Rubicon, without hesitation, they followed. My question to you and to me today is, do we respect the authority of our eternal king at least as much as those pagan soldiers respected the authority of their pagan general who was there for 50 or so years and gone, whose kingdom the Roman Empire gone, right? We should be respecting the authority of our king infinitely more than some pagan soldiers with their pagan general. So, what we're going to look at this morning and next Sunday is the authority of the king, the authority of the king, and we're going to look at it through the Great Commission, the the Great Commission that I read earlier, Matthew twenty-eight verses sixteen through twenty. There. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of the nations. But before he says that, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. All authority in the universe is possessed by me, Jesus says. And when we hear that, do we think, Wow. Or do we say, Eh, whatever. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I believe the 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 church universal and we as believers are losing our impact. The church is losing its impact in the world and it's no longer influencing the world. It's being influenced by the world because we've lost our respect for the king's authority. We've lost our reverence for the king's authority. His authority is a big deal. It's a huge, huge deal. And as I say, we're going to see it in the Great Commission, which is at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. But before we go there, let me just step back and talk about some background with respect to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, the Apostle Matthew, wrote the Gospel of Matthew for two reasons. One, to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah King. And number two, to explain what's going on in the kingdom of program. The Gospel of Matthew is a very Jewish book. We say that because the topics are very Jewish. The writing style is very Jewish. And the genealogy that, that the book begins with is very Jewish, right? The, the the Gospel of Matthew begins with this lineage, this genealogy tracing Jesus to David, which is very important because Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the son of David, that the title One of the titles of Messiah is Son of David. So Matthew had to trace Jesus' lineage to David. And then, so he goes back a thousand years roughly to David. Then he goes back another thousand years in the genealogy to Abraham, the father of the Jewish race. And so Matthew is a very Jewish book. And Matthew starts out the gospel with his first purpose, which is to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah King. So Matthew says Jesus does what the Messiah was prophesied to do in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He heals the lame. He raises the dead. He cleanses lepers. He has a kingdom like the Messiah of the Old Testament was prophesied to have. And so Matthew says submission to Messiah by faith alone brings entrance into his kingdom, brings the eternal blessing of interest into his entrance into his kingdom, Versus disbelief, rejection of Messiah brings the eternal punishment of being excluded from His kingdom. So Matthew drives this point home of his first purpose: Jesus is the promised, the prophesied Messiah King. So the Jewish reader would have said, "Okay, I I I I got it, Matt, I, I got it." But where's His kingdom, right? If Jesus is the promised Messiah King, where's His kingdom? I mean, the Old Testament is full of these promises about the utopian kingdom that the Messiah will bring. This kingdom of peace and prosperity and justice and righteousness. Where's his kingdom? The Jewish reader would have asked if he's the promised Messiah king. So Matthew gets to his second purpose, explaining what's going on in the king's kingdom program. And Matthew says, look, the king offered his kingdom. The king offered his kingdom. What was Jesus' message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was an offer of <clears throat> excuse me, the, the kingdom, and, and that's what the forerunner before Jesus, John the Baptist, said. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was an offer of the kingdom to Israel. But Israel rejected her king and rejected his kingdom. And so the king postponed the kingdom. Israel had the king tortured and crucified, and so the kingdom did not come at that time. Now, some in Christianity over the centuries have said, well, okay, if, if the Jews had the Messiah crucified, then it's okay to be anti-Semitic, some have said, over the centuries. L- let me be crystal clear on this point. It is fundamentally wicked to be anti-Semitic, to engage in anti-Semitism. And here's why. God has chosen in his sovereignty, the Jewish race to be be the conduit. You could say almost the pipeline through which he, excuse me, blesses all of us, blesses all of humanity. God chose in his sovereignty, a Semitic race. He could have chosen an African race or an Asian race or a Caucasian race. But he chose a Semitic race, a man by the name of Abraham. And that's why God said in Genesis 12, 3, when he's spe- speaking to Abraham, at that time his name was Abram, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through the Jews, all the families, all the nations, all the races, all peoples are blessed. And so Satan hates you. He hates human being. He hates anyone other than himself, and that is why he attacks, tries to cut off the pipeline of blessing that God gives to all of humanity through the Jews. It is not an accident that the Savior of the world is a Jew of Jews, Jesus of Nazareth. It is not an accident that every author, human author, of the 66 books of the Bible, except for Luke and maybe Job, Is a Jew. It is not an accident that all the apostles who gave us the words of the the Savior are Jews. It is not an accident that when the king returns to bring the prosperity and peace and justice and righteousness of heaven to this terrestrial ball, to the earth, that that king, or if you want to say that emperor of the world, bringing, showering, peace on the earth, it's not an accident that he is a Jew. And it is not an accident that he will rule from the capital of the Jews, Jerusalem. These are not accidents. These are not historical accidents. These are the precise plan of God. And so that is why I say anti-Semitism is wicked and it is utterly absurd for a Christian to be involved in anti-Semitism because it shows a total ignorance of God's plan to bless us through his chosen people, the Jews. And so the king came to his people, but his people received him not. So what did he do? He postponed the kingdom in this period, this period between when he was here last on the earth and when he will return. That is called the church the church age. It was, it was a previously unknown age because it was not disclosed, not revealed to the writers of the Hebrew Scriptures. They didn't know anything about it. And so we're in this age between the two advents. We're in the age of the postponement of the kingdom of God coming to this globe, the kingdom of heaven coming to this globe. And so the king's not here right now. He's not here right now. And so we don't see his authority Displayed. Instead, you see the king's authority displayed indirectly. You see his authority displayed through you and through me. Those who follow Christ, he displays his authority. When we, in submission to Christ, obey him, honor him, do his will, then he is displaying his authority through us. But when he returns, he'll display it majestically through his presence on the earth. And then it will be utterly undeniable, undeniable. So during this postponement period, the church age, the king is adding heirs to his coming kingdom. He's adding heirs to his coming kingdom that he is bringing to the earth. And Gentiles play a very important role in this Jewish book in this Jewish book of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, now, the Gospel of Matthew, please don't misunderstand, it's for all of us, but it, it, it has a very Jewish uh, uh, color to it in terms of the, the writing style and the topics. But there, the, the Gentiles play a very important role in it. And the reason I say that is you see throughout the Gospel of Matthew the, 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 the role that Gentiles have. In Matthew 2, you see the Magi from the East, Gentiles come and worship the baby king, the baby Messiah. In Matthew 8, you see this centurion, this Roman officer who approaches Jesus and says, please come and heal my servant. And Jesus says, I'll come to your house. And, and, and the centurion says, no, 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 no. Don't come to my house. I'm not worthy for that. Just, just, just say the word. Just say it. And he'll be healed. Because I'm a man under authority, the centurion says. I've got generals over me and I've got soldiers underneath me. And I recognize your authority. And so just say the word. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, no one in Israel has faith like this Gentile I haven't seen anyone in Israel like faith like this Gentile. And so Gentiles have an important role in the gospel of Matthew. We see that in Matthew 2, in Matthew 8, the centurion, and in Matthew 15 with the Canaanite woman who asked Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter. And then we see it in chapter 27 of Matthew where the second centurion who oversaw the torture and crucifixion of the Savior of the world... Is pierced through as Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's pierced through and he says, Surely this was the Son of God. Meanwhile, the leaders of Israel, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are mocking him as he hangs between heaven and earth. Gentiles play an important role in the Gospel of Matthew. And so Matthew's crescendo, and he's building up to the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, where Matthew says, where Matthew records Jesus' words, where Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of. All the nations, all the nations. So this is just background. This this is background that I wanted to give you all with respect to the Gospel of Matthew before we dive into our passage. And there are three principles that I'd like you all to take away from this background. Number one, because Israel rejected her king and his kingdom, he postponed the kingdom. Number two, during the postponement, During the postponement of the kingdom, the king is adding heirs to his coming kingdom through the church. Through the church. And the majority of those heirs are Gentiles. So number one, because Israel rejected her king and his kingdom, he postponed his kingdom. Number two, during the postponement, the king is adding heirs to his coming kingdom through the church. And number three, when the king returns, he will fully display his rule and his authority. If you're not already there, please turn to Matthew 28, verse 16. The first verse in the Great Commission as found in, in the book of Matthew. In Matthew 28, verse 16, we read, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Now, this is real interesting. Jesus had prophesied two chapters earlier, Matthew 26, verse 32, that he would go to Galilee after he was raised from the dead and that he would draw his disciples to him. In Matthew 26, 32, we're told, Jesus said, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. He's talking to his disciples. Someone who prophesies their death, their resurrection, and what they're going to be doing after they're raised from the dead is someone that we should listen to. It's someone who has authority. It's someone who has power. Forgive me for saying this. It's someone who knows what he's talking about, right? Three years earlier, Jesus had begun his ministry there in Galilee. And that was to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 9-1, that Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles, would be blessed. Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles. that's That's what Galilee was called. Galilee's at the northern part of Israel. Jerusalem's in the southern part of Israel. And so nations or Gentiles is the Greek word ethnos, where we get ethnic or ethnicity in our, in our English language. Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee of the nations to fulfill Isaiah 9.1. And his home base in Galilee is the city called Capernaum. It's a very international city. It's on this trade route. It's, it's, on, a, it's on a major highway that connects these Gentile nations of Egypt and Syria and beyond. And it's this this economic hub there in Galilee, important enough for the Romans to station a garrison of troops with a centurion, the centurion I talked about before, there in Capernaum. So it was fitting for Jesus to issue the Great Commission, the worldwide commission from Galilee of the Nations. D.A. Carson puts it this way. From of old, the Messiah was promised to Galilee of the Gentiles, or Galilee of the nations, a foreshadowing of the commission to all nations. Verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. That's a curious word there. It seems out of place, doesn't it? Doubtful. What do you mean these guys are doubtful? The 11 are doubtful. Did they doubt that he was Messiah? Did they doubt that he was resurrected? No, they had believed that he was Messiah. There was only one of the disciples who rejected Christ. That was the, who Jesus called the son of perdition, Judas Iscariot. There are two people in the Bible who are called the, the son of perdition, the son of destruction. The Antichrist in 1 Thessalonians and Judas Iscariot. So Judas, Hadn't believed, but the other 11 had trusted Jesus as Messiah. And the other 11 had seen him resurrected. They saw him crucified in Jerusalem in the southern part of Israel. He appeared to them in his resurrection body, which had to be a, a, a really amazing event to see, right, in Jerusalem. And then they followed him up to the north to Galilee for our passage here. So they believed in him. They believed in the resurrection. What is it that they're doubting they're doubtful in the sense that they're hesitant. They're uncertain. We know what the world did to you. And we're your followers. So what, 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 what's going to happen to us? They're doubtful. They're uncertain. And so what does Jesus do? Verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus approaches them. Jesus comes to them, right? It says, and Jesus came up and spoke to them. He approached them to calm them in their uncertainty, to calm them in their hesitancy, to firm them up because they were scared. Jesus turned cowardly Christians into martyrs. All of them were martyred for their audacity to declare that Christ is the only way to the Father. The only, the only exception was the Apostle John. All the others were martyred. Jesus turned cowardly Christians into martyrs. Sometimes I think we're like the eleven. Sometimes we're afraid of being mocked. Sometimes we're afraid of persecution. Now, for us in the States, you know, it's true that, that, that our culture is becoming more and more hostile to Christianity. But we're really freaks of nature in America in the sense of religious liberty. We have a lot of religious liberty. Go to Lahore, Pakistan. Go to North Korea. Go to northern Nigeria. Go to Yemen. And that's persecution. You want to lose, lose your job, lose, your, lose all your possessions, maybe lose your life? That's persecution. It is real persecution. But Jesus transforms These men who are afraid of the world, afraid of being mocked, afraid of being persecuted, transforms them into men who are willing to give their lives for him. How does he do that? How does he do that? He does it with power. He gives them the cure for fear of the world. The cure, the antidote, the medicine for fear of the world is power. What does he say? He says all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There is no escaping my power. There is no escaping my authority because authority and power go hand in hand. You don't have a po- you have authority if you don't have power. Right? When when the police officer pulls you over for speeding, if he's got a squirt gun here on his hip as opposed to a real weapon, then you know, you say, "Well, you know, when, when, when the officer's trying to stop the bad guy who's robbing a bank, if he has a squirt gun on his hip as opposed to a real weapon, you say, well, you don't, have, I mean, you don't have power to back up your authority. Your authority is hollow. Jesus says, I have all authority. And he has the power to back it up. And there is no escaping his authority. Alfred Plummer puts it this way. Jesus has not merely power or might such as a great conqueror might claim, but authority, as something which is his by right, conferred upon him by one who has the right to bestow it. In other words, conferred on him by the Father, by God the Father. And Jesus says all authority. I have all authority. He says the word all four times. All authority, Go therefore to all nations, teach them all I commanded you, and lo, I am with you all the days, translated always. All, 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 because his point is all. There is no escape. There is no place in the universe that is exempt from his authority or his Power. His power is absolute. And after all, Matthew has been emphasizing, he's been working up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew. He's been emphasizing Jesus' authority throughout the Gospel of Matthew. He says it in Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having, say it with me, authority. Authority and not as their scribes. Or Matthew 9, 6 but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. Or Matthew 16, verse 15 through 18, He, Jesus, said to them, but he's talking to the twelve disciples, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And here comes his statement, his claim of authority and power. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That is a statement of absolute power and authority. Why? Because there are two forces in the universe, God and his Christ and angels and heaven and those who follow God and his Christ. And Satan and hell and demons and those who follow them. And Jesus says, that other force, the gates of Hades, it's not going to stop me. Nothing and no one will stop me to build my church. That is a claim of power. That is a claim of authority. And what did Peter say? He said here, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Where have we heard that phrase, son of God? It comes from Psalm 2. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 2 or, or toggle there on your phones or your, or your iPads. Psalm 2. And as you go there, let me just give you a little, a little background here. This is, a, this is a royal psalm, a psalm where God anoints his king and declares his king's position and declares his king's kingdom. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take, their, take counsel together against the Lord and against his Mashiach. That's anointed. Mashiach means the anointed one. Mashiach, transliterated into English, is Messiah. Mashiach, translated into Greek, is Christos. Translated into English is Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. It's a title of authority and power. Verse 2 again. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Let's free ourselves from God. That's the call of the culture. Let's liberate ourselves from God, from the burden, from the the, the responsibility. Let's free ourselves from God. That's the call of the culture today in the year 2019. And that was the call of the culture thousands of years ago when this psalm was written. Then God responds. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. In other words, he mocks them. These are are words of hyperbole, but these are words showing the absolute determination and conviction of the Lord's. His will will be done. And the idea that it won't be is silliness. He mocks that idea that he will be defeated. Verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. That's a reference to Jerusalem. I will surely tell... Now, now this, is, this is the king speaking to God. Verse 7. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. I feel like I've heard that word begotten somewhere before. Haven't we heard that word begotten somewhere? John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 8, Ask of me, this, this is the Lord speaking to my son, to his son, the king. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. That's the son's kingdom. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. That's the son's authority, his power. Verse 10, now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. How often do we tremble at the word of God? Verse 12, do homage to the son that he may not... That he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath, that's the son's wrath there, may soon be kindled. Like that. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see what's happened here? Jesus saves us from his own wrath. Jesus saves us from his wrath. Because all authority has been given to him, and he will judge. Hebrews says, man is appointed once to die, and then the judgment. We will all, all of humanity will be judged, and the judge with a capital J will be Jesus. Unbelievers will be judged at the lake of fire, Revelation 20, and cast into the lake of fire because they have refused, using the words of Psalm 2, the last sentence, to take refuge in him. They've refused to have faith alone in the eternal Son of God. Believers, we will be judged, or maybe the better word is, we'll be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3. We we can't lose our salvation, but we'll be evaluated with respect to eternal rewards, with respect to our lives. Did we live for Him or not? So that's the title, Son of God. That's That's where we get the title, Son of God, in the Scriptures. Jesus is fully God, fully man, Undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. How about the other title? The other title that I mentioned earlier, Son of Man. Where does that come from? It comes from Daniel 7. Please turn in your Bibles to Daniel 7, verse 13. That was the other title that Jesus used for himself. He he used it very frequently for himself. And as you turn to Daniel 7, 13, let me just give you a little context here. This records... Daniel's vision, the vision that God gave Daniel with respect to God the Father and God the Son and his kingdom. Daniel 7, verse 13. Daniel says this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days. What a name. The Ancient of Days. It's a reference to God the Father. And was presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. This sounds a whole lot like the Great Commission to me. All peoples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations because it's always been God's plan to bless the nations through the Jews. That's why God said to Abram, as I mentioned earlier in Genesis 12, 3, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then we read on in, in Daniel 7, 14, his dominion, this is the son of man's dominion, is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The, king, the son's kingdom is forever And ever, and ever. So the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, added humanity to his essence. Fully God, fully man. Came in the form of a man as a human being to do the will of God to do the will of the Father, and he restrained the independent use of his divine power, his divine authority, his divine omniscience, his divine omnipotence, all of his divine characters, characteristics, he restrained the independent use of those so that he could do the will of the Father, to obey the Father, to do service to God and to God's people. So Jesus restrained the independent use of his power, and instead when he was on the earth, relied on God's power. That's why we read in Matthew 4 that he was led by the Holy Spirit out to the wilderness to be tempted. That's why we read that he cast out demons by the power of the Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 12. And an angel ministered to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus is relying on the power of God, not exercising the independent use of his divine power that's why satan tried to get jesus to violate that right i mean in matthew 4 satan says oh you haven't eaten for 40 days see those rocks right over there turn those into bread jesus and 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 satisfy your hunger but that wasn't the will of the father jesus had the power to do that but he restrains the independent use of his power in order to do the will of the father In order to fulfill the Mosaic Law, which no Israelite was able to do, that's his active righteousness. And in order to die on the cross for our sins, that's his passive righteousness. Righteousness, the righteous one, the only righteous one. But then when his life was finished as the suffering servant, now it's different. Now it's different. Because then the Father gave him all authority, and this is what hurts my brain. He added glory and authority to his essence. What I, mean, what I mean by that is he's always been God, right? Jesus, fully God, fully man, always God, the eternal Son of God, with all the attributes of, of deity, sovereignty, authority which is really part of sovereignty, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, all those things. He comes as a man and he restrains the independent use of those things. And he obeys the Father as a man, as a human being. He dies as our substitute. And so what does the Father do? He exalts him as a human being above angels to have all authority in the universe, all authority in heaven and on earth to the glory of the Father. Total authority as a human man resurrected, sitting at the right hand of the majesty on high, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 1. But the minute I say that he's a man, I also have to say that he's fully God because he's one person, fully man, fully God One person forever. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. Although he, Jesus, existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave or bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here here comes the exaltation. For this reason, for what reason? For the reason that he humbled himself and died for for us, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him, Philippians 2.9, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That even includes unbelievers. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, there is no escape from the authority and the power of the King. His power and authority is in, all of, is in heaven and the earth. All of heaven and the earth. It is universal. And when he returns, he will fully display it. I believe the church today is losing its impact. We're being influenced by the culture as opposed to the other way around. The church is supposed to be influencing the godless culture, but now we're being influenced by the, by the godless culture. And I believe one of the major reasons for that is because the church, universal, Christians have lost their respect for the authority of their king. You have authority? Okay. Whatever. Ho-hum. Eh. We've lost respect for the authority of our king. If we respected his authority and his power, then we'd see the urge, as, as laid out in the Great Commission, we'd see the urge to go out and tell people, tell people. Look, look, you want the the eternal blessing of being admitted into his kingdom. You don't want the eternal punishment of being excluded from his kingdom. Eternal blessing is by faith alone in him. Eternal punishment is by rejection of him. We would feel the urge to tell people about that. I mean, when was the last time we gave the gospel to somebody? Right? We would feel that urge. We feel that urge when we respect his authority and we respect the reality that there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of accountability. The Bible calls it the the day of the Lord. It is where the Lord settles accounts and this man, this God-man is the judge. Let me say it differently. The church is losing its impact. The church doesn't take Christ's authority seriously either because we don't love Him or because we don't fear Him. It's one or the other. We don't love the one who laid aside temporarily, who, who, who didn't exercise His divine privileges, His divine attributes for us, to die on the cross for us. We don't love that one enough to obey Him, to honor Him to follow him with conviction. Or we don't fear the one. We don't fear the one who has all authority and power. It's one or the other. Now, love is the better motivation. Love is the better motivation, right? We love him because he first loved us, First John 4, 19. The Father loved us, John 3, 16. The Son loves us, John 15, 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Love is better than fear because love Casts out fear. First John, John 4, 18. If we love Jesus, we'll obey him. That's what he said. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Obedience flows out of love. It's a product of love for God, love for Christ. When I'm sinning, either in thought or in deed or in speech, and same for y'all, for any of us, what we're saying is, I love this guy. I love me more than I love you, Christ. It's as simple as that. I don't like I mean, it's embarrassing to say that. But it's just, it's true. It's true. But let me be clear. If we're not going to love him, then we better fear him. Not fear to lose our salvation, because we can't lose our salvation. But fear of divine discipline. Because as Pastor Bruce has been teaching us in the book of Hebrews, there is serious discipline that Christ, in, that the Lord inflicts on us when we rebel against Him, when we take Him lightly, when we take His commands casually. Hebrews 12, 6, there we're told, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. We don't really use that word scourging anymore in our language. It's, it's a word that's kind of been removed. It's an old English word. And I'm glad it's been removed. I mean, it, it, it's, it means brutal, brutal whipping. It was a form of punishment that, that, that nations and states would use. We, we, it's, it's probably been banned for hundreds of years now. But scourging here, the, the point is, the Lord, the word here is scourging. He scourges every son whom he receives to correct us, to bring us back into obedience with him, so either love him or fear his discipline. Proverbs twenty verse thirty puts it this way: beatings and wounds cleanse away evil, and floggings cleanse the innermost being. I don't like any of those words. I don't like any of the. I don't like beatings. I don't like wounds, and I don't like floggings. I mean, flogging is the same thing as scourging. I don't like any of those words. But what the scripture tells us is. The Lord does that to us when we rebel against Him. We're told to approach Him in awe and reverence. Finally, Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, you have a passport that says on it, kingdom of God, eternal kingdom of God, because you are a member of the forever unshakable kingdom of God. Of God. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Do we view the authority of Jesus with reverence or awe? Or is it, eh, whatever? Next Sunday, we'll also see a third motivation that's laid out in the scriptures, which is rewards. So in closing this morning, Jesus postponed bringing the, the kingdom of heaven to this earth because Israel rejected him and rejected his kingdom. And there are five principles that we've seen today. Number one, we've seen that during the postponement, the king is adding heirs to his kingdom. Number two, we've seen that as Messiah King, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. It's universal authority. There's no escape. All authority. Number three, as Messiah King, he is coming back to institute his kingdom. Number four, if we take his authority lightly, then we'll take his commands lightly, including his command in the Great Commission. We'll take his desire to add heirs to his coming kingdom flippantly, lightly, casually. It'll be low priority for us. Number five, we should obey him either because we love him or because we fear him, because we fear his discipline. But love is the better motivation. More on this next Sunday. Father, we thank you for our time together today. We ask that you challenge us by the reality of the authority that you've delegated to your son. Challenge us to be mindful of it and to love him and to love you. And challenge us, if we're not going to love you, to have a healthy fear of you, fear of the discipline that you would impose on us if we rebel against you. And we pray these things in the name of Christ, giving all praise and glory to you. Amen.